back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the latest edition of the MVP cast with me, Mark Woods. Hope you're staying safe and sane in these troubled times. Our guest this time out is a legend of British Basketball League times past. A coach who won much more than he lost over here. A leopard, then a rider, and always a showman on and off the court. Billy Mims, welcome to the MVP cast. Mark, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be uh, having an opportunity to chat with you. It's been many years but I always enjoyed our time together and, and a lot of special memories. I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago. Does it seem that long for you? I mean, it's almost, I don't know, 15 years since you left this country, but I mean, the impact well, you made, the time that you had, you always seem to enjoy it. I did. I, I, I actually, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I just finished my 38th season on the sidelines somewhere, right? I've been here at Florida Tech for 15 years now. But this year was my 38th season overall in coaching. I spent 12 years in living in England. And as you said, coaching two pretty good franchises in the BBL. And, you know, both the London Leopards and the Leicester Riders to the first championships in either club's history. And I'll tell you honestly, I made so many wonderful friends. Uh, I miss my time in, in England. As you probably know, I, I come back two or three times every year. I'm I come back to visit the family and friends, but I also come back and do a lot of recruiting for our college team over there in the UK as well. But uh, I'll be honest, the, the 12 years I spent living and coaching in the BBL were certainly some of the happiest times in my life. I mean, you came over initially, you know, mid nineties and the, the BBL at that point, you know, we, we look at this sometimes through rose tinted glasses, but it, it was the biggest and high profile that it was ever been during your spell, you know, spell over here. You, you'd had that spell in Ireland with, with, with Neptune, but you know, you get the offer to come to London Leopards, of course, and then the big, what was then a huge arena now demolished the, the London arena. But <laughs> what, what was the selling point for you when, you know, Harvey Goldsmith, Ed Simons, the guys who were who started the Leopards or taken over the Leopards. What was the big selling point from them to you when they said, come over and join us? Well, it was very exciting. You know, I was coaching uh, in the NCAA in Miami, Florida. Um, and so, you know, I had a good job. I was at Barry University, um, you know, and living in one of America's top cities, Miami, Florida. But I got a phone call one day from Barry Dow. Uh, who was the American living in London, who was, had been the general manager of Kingston when they had gone into Europe and had then been w working with Guilford. And then when that club went under and, and Ed Simons and Harvey Goldsmith decided to have a team based in London, they brought Barry Dow in as the general manager. And Barry gave me a call in my office in Miami one day. And we were talking about one of my players as as wanting to come play for the london leopards and so I, as any good coach would do i spent like two solid days on the phone with barry selling him on my player at the time was a division two all-american named anthel hicks and, and i really wanted to help anthel get this job playing in london so the second day barry calls me back and he said hey he said you know really you've done a great job selling your player but 
we kind of think we're going to go with a veteran who's just become available. He didn't tell me who it was at the time, but they wanted to try and sign a player that had some BBL experience, some European, and didn't really want to go with a rookie out of college. And I said, I understand that. That's okay. So I was a little dejected for my player. But then before hanging up the phone, Barry said to me, he said, but we would like to talk to you about being our head coach. Would you have any interest in coaching professional ball over here in Europe? And I was floored because for two days, all I was thinking about was trying to sell them my player. It wasn't really about any thought in my mind of ever going over there. Well, we were running a camp, a large camp, uh, high school team camp. So we probably had 50 or 60 high schools on our campus that week. And Barry said to me, he said, we'd like to get you over here for an interview right away. And I said, well, I can't go right now. I've got you know, 50 or 60 high schools on my campus. He said, well, when does the camp end? I said, five o'clock Friday. He said, great. We can have you on British Airways going out of Miami to London, eight o'clock on Friday night. If you can be on the plane, we're going to fly you over for the weekend. And I thought, well, worst case scenario, it's a free trip to London for the weekend. Sure, I'll go. So I left Miami, flew to London. Barry picked me up at the airport and then I spent a whirlwind 40 hours going. He took me to the down to the Guilford Spectrum to watch, you know, Carl Brown, Carl Miller, uh, Ronnie Baker, some of the great players that I had on my first Leopards team. Julio Politi was down there, uh, Adrian Cummings. So I, uh, Clive Harriet was another one I remember. But I had all these good British guys working out at the Guilford Spectrum. And I knew Carl, Carl Brown, from playing for one of my good friends, Bobby Cremens, at Georgia Tech. So I knew Carl and, and right away went to talk to him. And he started telling me about the BBL and selling me on the league and the quality of players. And then my final interview that weekend, Barry took me to Planet Hollywood, because if you remember, they sponsored our London team. So we went to Planet Hollywood. We went downstairs, private area, and we're sitting at a table and we're talking. And while we were sitting at that table, I believe Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis were in the little movie theater premiering one of their films for some close friends in London. And so here I am, this kid from Monk's Corner, South Carolina, and I'm sitting in London, England, in Planet Hollywood, only a few feet away from Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone. I mean, it's I'm in the same building as Rocky, for God's sake. <laughs> so it was really difficult when the phone rang and Barry answered the phone there at the table. And he said, yes, 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 okay. Hangs up the phone takes a piece of paper, writes a number on it, slides it over to me and said, we'd like to offer you the job. Here's our offer. And at that moment, I didn't even have to open up the paper. I thought they're going to play in London arena, which was a beautiful facility. I'm going to live somewhere in East London, one of the world's most beautiful historic cities. I'm going to coach pro basketball, you know, and I'm going to see the world. I, I didn't really care what they wrote on the piece of paper. 
at that point, Mark, I was sold. Carl Brown, Barry Dow, London Arena, Planet Hollywood. Billy Mims was on his way to becoming the next Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. <laughs> I mean, it, that era, I mean, it, you had guys, I mean, for those who don't know, Harvey Goldsmith was was one of the biggest concert promoters in the world, involved in Live Aid and had all the, all the biggest names on his book. So it was, he was a man absolutely steeped in show business. And that's what he was trying to bring to, to the Leopards along with, with Ed Simons, who was his, his business partner. I mean, did it feel at that point that you were walking into something that was as much about building an entertainment product as basketball? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you probably remember uh, back then, we used to try and do things, Mark, that, you know, uh, even the NBA wouldn't do. <clears throat> I mean, we had Fat Freddy from Kiss FM, you know. As the Good DJ friend of mine, Fat Freddy, um, Freddy Morrison to his friends. Oh. A wonderful, wonderful guy. And he loved the game of basketball. I remember Fat Freddie. My introduction to him took place in the Brixton Rec Center. And Barry Dow took me down there to meet Fat Freddie and the legendary Jimmy Rogers. Uh, you know, who's anybody in British basketball, certainly in London basketball circles, knew Jimmy Rogers. And he developed some of the finest talent in, in London and British basketball history. And so I went down to the Brixton Rec Center to meet Fat Freddie. And they were just a, a Saturday afternoon game going on. And Freddie had music that would make you, you needed earplugs. It was like being <laughs> at Heathrow Airport at the highest point of takeoff and jet engines soaring over you. While the Brixton Rec Center with a packed house uh, the top cats playing, Jimmy Rogers coaching, and Fat Freddy on the turntable was louder than Heathrow Airport. So I just got caught up in, you know, like that that aspect of it, that it was more than a game. We It, it kind of reminded me, Mark, of being a basketball historian that I am. It kind of reminded me of stepping into the British version of the old ABA you know, when they tried to rival the NBA mm. and the ABA was all about the show. It was basketball, but how were you going to get people away from the NBA? Well, you had to put on a show. And so it was just as much about the promotions that went on at the game. And, and we, we had tryouts for cheerleaders, the leopards dancers. And I mean, we would get some of the top models in London top show dancers, girls that had danced in the West End in theater. And, and they're coming out because they want to be part of the Leopards, the London Leopards. You know, it, it was just, it was, you know, the music, the dancing, uh, the competitions that we ran. Everything was about the show. And of course, in London, we had the celebrities because, okay, we were sponsored by Planet Hollywood. So occasionally we'd get some of those stars to come to a game, you know, whether it was Sylvester Stallone or Bruce Willis, uh, a movie star of that type coming to see a basketball game. I can remember I was at a Christmas party. You'll love this story. Harvey Goldsmith, as you said a moment ago, is a great pop promoter. So one of the perks I had would be like backstage passes or front row seats 
I was backstage for Eric Clapton at the Royal Albert Hall because of Harvey Goldsmith. I, I sat like three rows off the stage for wet, wet, wet at London Arena because of Harvey Goldsmith. And so I was invited along with most of our team for a Christmas party in, in London one time. And of course, it was Harvey Goldsmith, HG Enterprises, throwing the party. So you had his basketball team there, but you also had celebrities from the music world there. And I went to the Lou at one point during the party. And as I walk in and I'm standing there getting ready to, to go to the Lou, there's a gentleman standing next to me. He looks over at me and he goes, hey, you're Billy Mims. And I said, yes, I am. And he proceeds to introduce himself. He says, I'm Daryl Hall. <laughs> and I said, you mean the Daryl Hall? He said, uh, well, I guess so. Yeah, Daryl Hall. I said, like Hall and Oates, Daryl Hall? He said, uh, yeah. I said, like private eye, Daryl Hall? He said, yeah. He said, I'm a big fan of yours. I said, no, 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 no. I'm a big fan of yours. He said, no, every time we come to London perform, Harvey invites us to the game. We love coming to watch the Leopards play. So, yeah, I was involved all of a sudden, again, from a small town in South Carolina. When I moved to London, England, and went to work coaching the Leopards, I was thrust into a whole different world. We were doing um, photo shoots with the Sun newspaper. I remember running up and down uh, Oxford Street, dribbling a basketball with Robert Youngblood and Henri Abrams, two of my player, American players at the time, and Melinda Messenger. <laughs> Famous you know, page three model in her day in the sun. <laughs> Did you, when you came down, I mean, you, you, you told the guys when you said, when you arrived, if you stick with me, I'm going to make you a champion inside three years. And obviously it was the kind of your word, I'm not saying money was no object, but budgets were pretty decent. But how, how tough was it to recruit or how easy was it to recruit guys to come into the league at that point? When you know, People in the, out, the outer world, you know, they'd heard of leagues in Italy and Spain and, you know, and Greece, etc. But still, people weren't sure what the BBL was. Well, and that's a great question, Mark, because at the time, you're right, it was the uncertainty of England. And everywhere you went to recruit players, whether you were recruiting European players or American players, their agents were telling them, yeah, but I can get you a lot more money in another country. You know, that it was always about, well, yeah, England would be a nice place to live and play, but the money's no good. You're not going to make enough money there. And the funny thing I learned in those first two years of coaching in England, the two years before we became a champion, um, my first two seasons with the Leopards, I was shocked at the quality, the level of play, the talent that we had on the floor. And, and you're right. I mean, I talked to my good friend Mike Shaft a lot still and uh, Russell Levinston, who's the GM of the Leicester Riders. Uh, I've known Russell ever since he was a little boy sitting on my bench at <laughs> Wembley Arena. Um, he was keeping stats for me at, in the Final Four at Wembley Arena when he was like 16 years old. Um, but in talking to those folks, everybody I talked to that, that was part of British basketball in those mid nineties and still a part of it today 
will look back and they're amazed at the level of talent that we were able to bring to the BBL back in the 90s. I mean, you got to remember, John Amici had played in the NBA, and he wasn't the only ex-NBA player playing in the BBL. And there were guys playing in the BBL coming from some of the top NCAA Division I programs in America that, you know, they, they were playing in the ACC. They were playing in the Big Ten. Uh, they were playing in, in the Big East. You know, they were playing at major universities, playing on national television in America, playing in front of crowds of fifteen to 20,000 fans for collegiate games, and they're coming to England to play. So the rest of Europe and the agents that we would work with, they just had no idea how really good the basketball was. And the sad thing was that that was probably the most talent to ever play, whether it was English players and American players. The combination of the great English players with the quality of the Americans that we brought over made those teams so good. But at the time, none of those teams were, were being able to play in Europe. So when we had maybe some of the most talented British basketball clubs ever, we just weren't able to afford to send them to play in Europe because the game wasn't making enough money in England. So that was the sad thing. But recruiting players, I thought I had a, a great situation because I'm using the city of London, England. I'm using the fact that if you're recruiting a, a great American, that, look, you're coming here and you can speak English. You know, you don't have to learn a foreign language to play in the BBL. You're going to live in one of the world's great cities. Um, you're going to play in a beautiful arena, London Arena. We sat 10,000 people. We had a portable wooden floor we had shipped over from America. So it looked like a big-time situation in a big-time city. They didn't have to learn a foreign language. And there was a KFC, McDonald's, or Burger King on every corner. So it was not a culture shock, and that's how we recruited players to the BBL. I mean, the big point I always remember back were those Leopards Towers games, the London Derby, of which we you know, never really had that in British Bath, even with the two London teams for a couple of years in the league. It wasn't quite the, the same, but that was a huge occasion every time those two teams met. I mean, did it feel like the world was going to end depending on who came <laughs> out on top of that game. Excuse me, Mark. Um, yes, it did. Uh, um, it, the world, it, the world did revolve around that rivalry. You probably remember, I don't think there was ever a towers leopards game where it was Kevin Cadle and Billy Mims going at it. That sky sports wasn't there. They, they, the Sky Sports came in and covered every one of those London derbies because the rivalry, you know, the crowds, whether you were at Wembley Court or whether you were at London Arena, the crowds would be chanting one way or the other, there's only one team in London. And, you know, there was just that bitter rivalry between the crowds, the fans. There was a rivalry between the players, you know, Danny Lewis and Robert Youngblood. Um, you know, um, uh, Tony Winless and Eric Burks, um, you know, Steve Bucknell and John White. All of these guys had a rivalry where they wanted to be the best player in the capital. They wanted to be the best team in the capital. And I can tell you, my ownership, 
uh, Harvey Goldsmith and Ed Simons, they did not want to lose to Barry Marshall. There was no way they were going to lose a game to Barry Marshall. So there was a business rivalry. There was a fan rivalry. There was a player rivalry. And then I think everybody also knew there was a rivalry with Kevin Cadle and myself. And, you know, again, we wanted the BBL to be a show. As a coach, I think you know, I wanted the London Leopards to be the most exciting team in the league. I wanted to lead the league in scoring every year. And the year that we won back-to-back league championships uh, in 97 and 98, we were back-to-back BBL champions. That Those were the years we had Youngblood, White, Burks, and we averaged around 100 points a game for both of those seasons. We were the fastest, highest-scoring team in the BBL. So we used to say that we didn't want to just win games. We wanted to be the most entertaining team in the country. Well, then you'd come up against Kevin Cadle, who held the record for the most championships ever won in British basketball, probably the most games ever won in British basketball, legendary career that started up in Scotland, uh, Murray medals, and then moved down to Kingston and then into the London Towers situation. So they had the most legendary coach in the game. And then they had this young South Carolina whippersnapper who's coming in saying, we're going to outscore you and we're going to out entertain you. Well, on the court, that made for a great rivalry between the two coaches. But off the court, we were really good friends. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what was that relationship like with Kevin? Because he, you know, he was a very fierce competitor, but you know, you guys did broadcast together. You know, was was that a friendship that you know that that grew out of the the competitive spirit that you both had? That's a great way of looking at it. I mean, you're right, Mark. I mean, we were both tremendous competitors. I mean, obviously, Kevin was a tremendous competitor, and and he was such an imposing person. You got to remember, he was a big man. So uh, as, as he would, you know, stalk the sidelines of BBL games, I think three officials out on the court or two officials, whatever we had at the time, they were uh, afraid of him. You know, this is Kevin Cadle. You know, he was legendary. He was like John Wooden at UCLA, or he was like, um, uh, you know, uh, going back all, all the way back to the Boston Celtics at Red Auerbach, um, you know, he was a legend of British basketball from the coaching perspective, the first great legendary coach of the game in the BBL. So, you know, when I came in as the new kid on the block, you know, uh, you know, I'm working for music tycoons like Harvey Goldsmith, and we're competing with Barry Marshall, who was another music tycoon. And then there's this legendary coach. Well, I'm the new kid on the block. So I've got to come out and be as flamboyant or more. And of course, Kevin was big. I'm only six feet tall. Kevin's a lot taller than that and might've weighed twice what I weighed. So he had a physical imposing presence, but I was louder than Kevin. I was probably louder and I probably spent more time on the floor, either on my knees or on my back, slapping the floor, jumping up and down, urging the crowd to get into the game. 
So, you know, I was a, the cheerleader where Kevin was just that imposing figure. And, you know, we started out as, as competitors, but the respect grew from a mutual admiration of the success that both clubs had. You know, there was a time there where the Leopards and Towers were the two best teams in the BBL. And like I said, because we were in London, the spotlight was on us because of the ownership of both clubs. You know, we were always in the media, in the news. Uh, we were always doing photo shoots with famous people. Uh, you know, whether it was rock stars, whether it was famous sports people from, from British soccer or rugby or other sports, or whether it was models and Playboy Playmates, we were always in the news doing something with, you know, famous people. And therefore, Kevin and I, you know, we became more famous because of all of a sudden Sky Sports and the Sun newspaper and the British media were all of a sudden, you know, just becoming enamored with the BBL and with basketball and where it was going in the country. Because, you no, know, it was not just the London owners, but remember you had Harry Rubleski that came into Birmingham. You had Sir John Hall at Newcastle. Uh, you had the Cook, Cook Incorporated at Manchester. So all of a sudden, there was an infusion of big owners, big money, big corporations that are owning basketball teams. And these guys wanted to put their money where their mouth was. You know, they wanted to put basketball in the limelight. So because of all of that, the rivalry between the Leopards and Towers became a historic rivalry that may never, ever get to that level again. And it was because of the money, the ownership, the location, the personalities, all of it played a factor. But as you said, I, to this day, I miss my friend, Kevin Cadle. Um, he and I had many, many good times together off the court. And as you said, for like 20 years, Kevin and I broadcast the NBA finals on Sky Sports. So we had a mutual admira admiration for each other, not just as coaches, but also as people. Yeah, I just really enjoy when I, I think we did a couple of games and those late night, overnight games where, you know, they'd sneak sandwiches into you at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, Kevin would always keep you kind of on your toes, but he was, he was such a you know great guiding hand to sit alongside him. And, you know, we all def desperately mess up. I mean, you, I remember that you got sacked by Leopard, 99, and you'd won those two championships there. And I remember talking to you, I think it was maybe that day, probably the, the day after, right? There was a serial sense of disappointment, and I wonder if you was was how did that feel now? With in retrospect, did it did you see that coming? Was it was it as shocking to you as maybe it seemed at the time? Because you know, remember within British basketball time, it was huge. Here's the guy that's delivered all the success, the big name, and they decided Billy no more. Uh, yeah, it was shocking uh, at the time, and, and still to this day, it, it is in a sense. And I, and I guess, you know, um, because I really loved the job I had there. I loved the team I'd put together. And, you know, we had had five successful seasons. I mean, if you look back, even our first year in the league, we won over 20 games my first year. I think we won 23 my second year. The third year, as you said, we I, pro I promised them. I did sit there and I said, when, when Harvey Goldsmith interviewed me for the job, 
I sat down in his office in, in uh, Northwest London and he was asking me a lot of questions. And when we finished, I said to him one thing, I said, look, if you want a quick fix, if you want a guy that's going to walk in here and promise you that we're going to win the title my first year and we're going to cheat to do it and we're going to, you know, we're going to be jerks about how we do it, then you're talking to the wrong guy. I said, but if you want a guy that's going to come in here, build this thing from the ground up into something special and, and something sustainable for the long, for long haul, then I'm your guy. So I think he, he bought into that. And I said, look, I said, I won't win the title. I can't guarantee you we're going to win the title in year one. I said, but give me three years and I'll bring you a championship. I'll bring you silverware. And he was okay with that. Well, as I said, we won 20 our first year, 21 maybe. We won 23 BBL games my second year. My third year, we won 27 and won the league and the cup. And then, of course, and we played in the final that year. We were we should have won the treble. And we can hash that again in a minute, but that memory still haunts me. But uh, against old buddies, uh, Kevin Cato in the towers. But we should have in the 96-97 Leopards should have won the treble. We had a great cup final win. We had a, a strong league finish and, and league title victory. Uh, and a great semifinal against my friend Mike Burton and the Chester Jets uh, in overtime that got us to the championship uh, to win the treble against my old buddy, Kevin Cadle. So that was a season I'll never forget. But then the following year in 98, we won the league again. We won. We were the first team to win back-to-back BBL championships in the modern era, in the era where you could have five Americans per team. No other team had done that. So the first team to win back-to-back titles was the London Leopards in 97 and 98 in that modern era where you could employ five Americans per team. Uh, And then the 99 season, we got to the cup final in Sheffield against Chris Finch and the Sheffield Sharks. And we lost that game on a last-second shot by Terrell Myers. So we won 20 games again that year. We got to the cup final, and I thought we had outplayed Sheffield that day. And you'll see how coaches' minds work. I still remember Stedroy Baker getting shoved out of bounds in front of my bench with less than a minute to go and us in the lead. If the foul gets called there, we retain possession and win the ball game. But because Stedroy gets shoved out of bounds and there's no call, and then Sheffield get the ball, it sets up Terrell Myers for a game-winning jumper. And if you go back and look at it, you can watch it a hundred times. Terrell Myers shoved off with his offhand to create space to get that jumper off. So he even committed an offensive foul on the game-winning shot. Now, Chris Finch probably sees it differently, but I still have nightmares about that last minute of play. So, If you look, even that year, we didn't win the league. We didn't win any silverware, but we were in the finals of the cup. And at that point in time, that was the closest tested um, cup final in BBL history. So that was a one-point game or two points. But I don't think there had been a cup. I was told that was the closest cup final to date at that point. Um, So we had a successful season. 
Then we come back the next year, and you might remember, I was let go five games into the season, but we were winning. And the very last game that I ever coached for the London Leopards, we played Nick Nurse and the Manchester Giants, uh, played them in Brentwood, and we beat them by 25. Um, played really, really well. And half of his team were my players that he stole from me. <laughs> you know, he had John White, he had McKeeva Perry, you know. Uh, but in that team, Nick had the best team, I thought, in, in the country that year. Um, but I thought we could have competed with them. We beat them at our place by 25. I think we were three and two at that point in the first five games and it just knocked off everybody's preseason favorite to win the BBL and, and didn't just beat them close. We beat them soundly. So when you asked me, was it shocking? Yeah, I was, I was shocked. I thought after that game, the confidence that our kids had that day against Manchester, I thought that we could have had a really good season. And who knows, you know, how far we could have gone uh, with that team. So I, I was a little shocked and a little disappointed. But, you know, I, I still had five great years uh, in, in with the Leopards. And, with you know, uh, Ed Simons uh, was always good to me. Um, Harvey Goldsmith was good to me. Uh, I had a great time living in London, some of the happiest memories of my life. And, you know, it's pro basketball. I, I, I'm a lot older now, and I look back on it, and, you know, where I was shocked and disappointed at the time, hey, they own the team. It was their decision to, you know, do whatever they wanted, what they felt was best for the team, and they did it. Um, and I always kind of reconciled it like this too, Mark. Billy Martin may be one of the greatest managers in Major League Baseball history, but George Steinbrenner and the New York Yankees fired him five or six times, you know? And so I said, look, there's an old saying, if you haven't been fired as a pro coach, then you really haven't been a pro coach. <laughs> I mean, you went up, I mean, almost immediately you got hired by Lester Myers. And for, for our younger listeners, won't realize that back in the day, I mean, they won a lot of trophies in recent years, but back then, Lester had never won anything. It was a, played in Granby Halls, which was a very rundown, atmospheric, but very rundown arena. You got up there and you won. And they, they, because of our lockdown at the moment, the BBL's been showing some classic games on its social media channels. And I was I was watching the other day the 2001 playoff final against the Sharks. And there was this great sequence at the start of the game where you were doing your trash talking and Chris Finch, who was coaching Sheffield at the time, was doing his trash talking. And it was all very big time. You know, you're hyping it up to the max. I can't remember what the lines were or whatever, but it, you know, it, was, like, it was like Rocky versus Drago type, type stuff. And, you know, I mean, Going in there to me to Leicester, I mean that time. I mean that that at that time I felt was a much bigger achievement because it was a franchise that had just lost and lost and lost and lost, and suddenly you came there and they won. I mean, did did it feel was the satisfaction level there pretty high because obviously you were coming off being kind of punched a bit in the gut with leopards and you went go there and achieve something even more remarkable and historic at that time. Well, I, I tell you, I give you a couple of quick scenarios of what took place. Um, first and foremost, uh, Kevin Rowlett picked up the phone and called me and I answered the phone and, and it was a very interesting phone call because I answered the phone and, you know, I'm sitting at home and, and, and obviously I want to get back on the court. You know, I, you know, I've been coaching for 38 years, Mark. I've done 
in my lifetime, most of my lifetime, you know, now like two thirds of my lifetime have been spent on a court. So basketball is not just a job to me. It's a way of life. And so uh, Kevin called me and I picked up the phone. I was desperate to get back on the court, you know, itching every day, you know, please, somebody call me, please. And, you know, you don't want to see another coach get fired. You know, you don't want another coach to lose their job. But I know I can't get back on the court unless there's an opening somewhere. Well, at the time, Leicester were 0-18. They hadn't won a single game. Now, that wasn't just in the BBL. That was in all competition. Okay? So that season, that moment in time, they, you know, yeah, they were the oldest franchise in British basketball history at that point. The oldest franchise in the BBL. And in the entire time, 36 years, they'd been in the BBL or at the highest level of British basketball. They had no silverware. They'd never won a trophy, a championship at the highest level. But they were the oldest team there. They'd been there longer than anyone. So stability they had, they just had never had the ultimate success. And they were 0-18 at this point in time. Well, Kevin picks up the phone and calls me, and I, I can still remember the first thing he said was, hey, Billy, this is Kevin Routledge at Leicester. Um, you probably don't want to be our coach, but I'd like to. <laughs> and, and it was like I was kind of floored that it started off negative. You know, you probably aren't interested in this job, but, you know, we're going to make a change, and you're sitting out, and I'd like to talk to you. And I'm like, wow, you know, I've never had somebody start a job interview, you know, on a negative note. <laughs> and he didn't realize at that point that, yes, I wanted any job because I wanted, I felt like I had five successful runs. I'd never had a BBL losing record at that time. Never. And I wanted to be back on the court in the BBL in British basketball at the highest level coaching against my friends and, and facing those challenges again. So he had no idea how bad I wanted to coach the riders or anybody. I was hungry to get back on the court. And then I had a, lot, a great chat with Kevin and we hung up and I said, okay, I'll get back to you. And then I called around a few of my friends to see their thoughts, you know, to bounce it off uh, other guys that I respected. And the funny thing was every single person I talked to said, no, you don't want that job. No, 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 that you can't win there. No, no, no. They've never won. No coaches won there. You can't win there. And that's what made me say, you know what? That's the challenge I want. I now want to go prove that, you know, I built the London Leopards from scratch. I took over the first year of that program and we turned them from nothing into a champion. And so I, I led that franchise to the first championships in club history. Well, now I had an opportunity to do it again for another franchise that had been around a lot longer, but had never tasted that sweet success. So, and everybody's saying to me, it can't be done there. You can't, I wanted to prove them wrong. So that was the second thing. So I said, called Kevin and I took the job. I said, yes, sir, I want the job. I want to be your coach, and I want to I want to take this team to another level. Well, 
remember I had promised the leopards three years and I'd get them there. Um, I, I kind of wanted to say the same thing to Kevin, only I felt a little bit more of a sense of urgency because they were 0-18 at the time. So he wanted to know, could I win the first game? You know, <laughs> not just the, the, the first championship. And lo and behold, the first game was against the London Leopards. My first game in charge was in Granby Halls against my old team, the London Leopards, that I had just been fired from. And believe it or not, you talk about great drama again. The Leicester Riders' former coach, Bob Donawal, was now the London Leopards coach. They Ed Simons had brought Bob Donawal in to replace me. So now you've got the former Leopards coach going against the former Riders coach, but on opposite benches. And uh, the Granby Halls, you talk about, yeah, it had a concrete floor. It's the only place in 38 years I've ever coached a team on concrete. And believe me, that's bad enough for healthy guys. But trying to coach Billy Singleton <laughs> on concrete, you know, we could only practice like once a week because you couldn't get Billy running up and down that concrete two or three times a week. But uh, the atmosphere in Granby Halls and the Riders fans, I will say this. When I came to Leicester, the Riders fans were some of the most passionate fans and loyal fans and that I've ever seen, not just in British basketball, but in sport, whether I'm in America, England, or somewhere else I've been, uh, the Riders fans had passion. I mean, and for so long, they had been denied, you know, that ultimate success. They had supported that franchise, that club, that team, years and years and years, and been disappointed. And so opening night, it's standing room only, uh, and it is, it's crazy. The atmosphere is crazy. And BBC Midlands are at the game covering the game. And I can remember when we won the game, they, the crowd stormed the floor in Granby Halls after the game. I never felt so welcome anywhere in my life than that night beating my old team in Granby Halls that night. And, uh, you know, I, I still have somewhere that the videotape of BBC Midlands uh, reporter doing the post game and talking about the highlights and the, and the end of the game and interviewing some of the fans and what they had to say about me being in charge in the first game they saw in my era. Uh, it, it, it certainly Hollywood couldn't have had a better script than that, that first game at Leicester. And then after that, it was a building process, but believe it or not, Mark, we did it faster there than we did it in London. We brought the Leicester Riders their first national championship cup success 18 months after I arrived in Leicester. You talk about two coaches you mentioned, which was Nick Nurse and Chris Finch. And obviously Nick, we all know, spectacularly winning a championship with the Raptors last year in the NBA and Chris Finch, who's associate head coach with the New Orleans uh, Pelicans, you know, you know, two guys you coach with, you know, week after week in the BBL. What do you think? How do you think the BBL became so good at developing coaches who then went on to do 
other great things in the game. You know, other Americans who went overseas and went into mainland Europe, some went into the NBA as well in different different roles. But what was it about the BBL at that point that was a great coaching grind? Well, I, you know, I think you kind of touched on it earlier when we said that, you know, people didn't realize how good the league was. I mean, the amount of talent that we had night in and night out. Uh, I remember when one of the first years I was coaching the Leopards and we, you know, we would always get NCAA division one teams coming over to England in the uh, late summer months on like a, a foreign tour to prepare their team for the next season. And I remember we played the big 10 all-stars in Stevenage and I had uh, Robert Youngblood. I had Eric Burks and I didn't have any of my other American players hadn't arrived yet. So I had Robert, Eric, and then I had British guys. I had Patrice Gordon, a young British kid had only been playing like one season with us. Uh, and then I had Clive Harriet. Uh, I had Adrian Cummings. I had a few other uh, British guys that were uh, Ronnie Baker, you know, that were really pretty good players. But we're playing the Big Ten All-Stars and Tom Izzo, Michigan State's head coach, who's a legend in Division I college basketball in America. His name's been tossed around for many NBA Open jobs. And we beat them in Stevenage. So what people didn't realize back then was that head-to-head, the coaches in the BBL, Billy Mims went head-to-head with Tom Izzo. Billy Mims beat Tom Izzo. People back here would not couldn't fathom that. That, wow, you outcoached Tom Izzo. Um, we played Xavier University in Mepham, in a tiny little gym in Mepham, Kent. Xavier University were coached by the late, great Skip Prosser, who was also at Wake Forest as well. So here's a top 10 team in America that's got like 10 future NBA players on it. And they come play a BBL team in Mepham, Kent, in a tiny little rec center with one row of chairs all the way around the court. And this team that plays normally in front of 20,000 people with a coach making seven figures and Skip Prosser, we beat them. So once again, there's Billy Mims and the London Leopards beating Xavier University, a top 10 American team, and a legendary coach who's making over a million dollars a year. So there were a lot of head-to-head moments that just showed, wait a minute. The level of talent in the BBL and the level of coaching here, I don't think the fans there ever really understood the quality that was on display in front of them or even maybe the the European coaches because we never played them or the agents that just looked at the salaries. Oh, well, that's all you're paying. You, You can't have very good players. Yeah, we had other reasons that got great players and great coaches into the BBL. And then I think, you know, we had a a really good core of coaches that were there that all had good backgrounds in America or whatever had come over and developed in the BBL. But, you know, what developed a young Nick Nurse or a young Billy Mims or a young Chris Finch was the opportunity to have early in our career to coach big games 
important games in front of huge crowds, great atmosphere, national television audiences, and pressure. We were in pressure situations, coaching very talented young players in packed arenas on Sky Sports, and that will prepare you for pacing the sidelines in the NCAA or anywhere in Europe or even the NBA. And, you know, I, I'm really proud of, you know, Nick Nurse and his achievement. With I'm, I'm happy for Nick and, and, and Chris Finch and the success he's had with the Houston Rockets, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans now, uh, you know, associate head coach there. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, really proud of these guys and the success they've achieved. But at the same time, you know, I sit there and I watch them. They're friends of mine. I've coached against them. I've been out to dinner with them. I've had drinks with them. You know, we've talked basketball. We've talked life. You know, we kind of grew up in the BBL together. And my son, Josh, you know, who's a, a, a rising basketball star himself right now, you know, he still can't believe it. So every now and then I have to get the old DVDs out. <laughs> and I say, yeah, look, you know, the guy that just won the NBA championship, I've beaten him. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really so pleased for their success, but at the same time, you know, it, it feels good to me going back and saying, you know what, we were blessed back in the mid nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. There was some tremendous basketball talent on the court, both players and coaches. And I've just, I, I feel blessed to have been a part of that blessed to have had an opportunity to coach against legends like Kevin Cadle and my, my, my friends that are so successful now, the Nick nurses of the world, the, the Chris Finches, uh, you know, Bob Donawal went from, from the BBL to uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was there uh, helping develop LeBron James when he was a young player. Uh, he coached China, the national team uh, in the world championships. So, Again, when you look at the level of those coaches, in, in 2010, FIBA invited me to Istanbul, Turkey uh, with the world championships, the senior men's world. And I went to Istanbul with Mike Budenholzer. So for a month in Istanbul, Turkey, the national coaches clinics that are being held by FIBA in conjunction with the world championships are virtually being taught by Billy Mims and Mike Budenholzer. And we're going to all the games, watching all the games. And there's, I'm watching Bob Donawal coaching China. And I've coached against Bob. I'm watching Perro Cameron play for New Zealand. And I've coached against Perro Cameron. And so, and other players in the event on the world stage in 2010. And I'm sitting there with Mike Budenholzer, who's now the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks and maybe the best player on the planet and, and Jonas Antetokounmpo. But again, people that weren't in England back in those mid-90s and early 2000s, they forget those people. They forget Perro Cameron, who played for New Zealand at the international level and actually carried New Zealand to a top four finish in the world championships in Indianapolis ahead of America. They finished higher than Team USA. 
and famously turned down an invite to the Pistons training camp because he had a contract with the Cheshire Jets in place. <laughs> a man of incredible integrity um, at the time. Um, Absolutely. Last thing to be real, because I want to talk. I want to finish off talking about college basketball. Though, but I mean, you you left, and I remember a Q and A. I was reading a Q and A you did with Britpool.com, the old website, and you, it was just after you'd you'd left Leicester to, to to head back to the states, and you you talked about that point in time when the BBL went from Sky to ITV Digital. We all know in the history of the BBL, in hindsight, the worst mistake that that the league ever made it was to, it was to chase that money. But we all kind of also talk about that era as, as as the BBL was slightly built in smokes and mirrors, and it sort of sat on a you know very poor foundations, and you know the tickets that were being given away, the, you know the money that was being spent without any kind of return. Do you at the time? I mean, it was maybe hard for us to see, but did, did you maybe see that coming? That you know that now that you've got this experience of basketball over the years, that could you have ever foreseen then that? things would collapse in the way that they did because it it was a nice image. You had all the cheerleaders and the page three pinups and the Playboy TV sponsorship, all those kind of stuff. But did you really see that underneath that it probably wasn't built the way that it needed to be? Well, I, I wouldn't say completely uh, because it really looked, I guess what had me going and maybe a lot of my other coaching friends um, who uh, we felt like, that it was just going to take off. And I guess the reason we did was two things. One was the big name owners that, that wanted to buy into basketball, the popularity of the game in Britain, you know, and worldwide that it was now rivaling soccer as the most participated sport in the world. So, you know, the popularity of the NBA worldwide. So the ownership and the popularity made us feel that it was really going to take off. And then there were two things I think that, that really hurt the game. And to this day, I guess, still hurt the game a little bit in England and maybe why it hasn't caught up to, say, the game in um, Italy or the game in Spain or the game in Greece. When you go to mainland Europe, um, especially in Spain and the ACB, you're watching NBA type games because you're watching the best, the highest level of talent in that country playing in a 20,000 seat arena sold out and on national television. Well, if the BBL had continued going forward, that's where it should be in England right now. Because when I first got there, we didn't have any facilities. Everybody was playing in rec leagues. Well, you can't make any or rec centers, sorry. You can't make significant money if you can only sell 500 tickets. How are you going to get significant sponsorship? So the problem holding the game back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s was there were no arenas in England, like, like there were in America or like there were in Europe. There wasn't facilities that you could put 10,000 people inside or 20,000 people inside. So if you could never draw a crowd like that, how would the big money sponsors going to, you, you couldn't sell a lot of tickets. You couldn't get a lot of sponsorship money. So you were teetering on, you know, uh, a, a, a commodity that was going to cost money to continue to improve, but you didn't have a way to get the money. Then they started building facilities. Okay. So you couldn't have that excuse anymore. 
I remember coaching the London Leopards in the MEN arena on opening night of the MEN, 20,000-seat arena. And nobody thought, oh, that's not going to – now, the Manchester Giants that night, yeah, they gave away a lot of tickets at McDonald's locations all over greater Manchester. But the fact of the matter is the people came, you know, kind of like if you build it, they will come from a famous baseball movie in America. But so all of a sudden they built the MEN arena. They got the word out there. They promoted it. And over 14,000 people showed up for that game. Today, you're still getting crowds. When you play the games in the O2, you're still getting crowds of 10 to 15 to 18,000 people maybe for a well-marketed game in a big arena. So the arenas, the facilities are no longer the excuse either. But the last thing I saw that I thought, last two things that I saw that I thought were going to slow the development and the growth of the game to take it to another level where it would rival pro basketball in the States or pro basketball in Europe. Those two things were two things. One, the media, lack of interest from the media. And I kept hearing from people, the main media, the mainstream media per se in England, all grew up, the the writers, the broadcasters, they all grew up following traditional British sport. They grew up, mom, their mom and dad, their grandfather took them to Highbury to watch Arsenal play, took them to White Hart Lane to watch Spurs play. They grew up following football, soccer, the EPL, the English Premier League. They grew up watching the Leicester Tigers playing rugby, Harlequins, you know, rugby league, rugby union. Or they grew up following cricket. So basketball was a fourth place finish. Maybe not in popularity of kids playing the sport, but a a deep fourth place finish in the eyes of the media because the guys writing the stories grew up covering the other sports. So that's where their care was. So you were almost going to have to wait a generation or two where the sports people take over that actually grew up loving the game of basketball. And if they go into the media, then the game has another chance to take off again. And so the media, I thought, was something that would hold the game back. And the final thing was this, and you might remember this, Mark. I talked about that opening night at the MEN, but you remember when Sir John Hall came in, they built that new arena in Newcastle. That's where he wanted the Eagles to play in Newcastle Arena. Harry Rubleski came in from the Sydney Kings playing in a big 20,000-seat arena in Sydney. He wanted to turn the BBL into like Australian basketball where every weekend, national television, every team in a big arena. So he played his games in the NIA, the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham. I remember coaching against Nick Nurse when he was the Birmingham Bullets coach Eric Burke's first game in the BBL was against the Bullets on Sky Sports with Mike Schaft doing uh, play-by-play and Billy Mims and Nick Nurse on the sidelines. And we won in overtime in an incredible game, come from behind win with Eric Burks, you know, telling the world he's arrived. But 
So we all had big arenas there. We played in London Arena. Uh, the Towers were playing in Wembley Arena some or Wembley Court some. Um, Sheffield Sharks were playing games in Sheffield Arena. So everybody was in these arenas. But you had the old school part of the league, like the Chester Jets or the Leicester Riders, a few of the old teams that had been around since day one. Tim's Valley Tigers, John Nike's team down in Bracknell playing in the Leisure Center, the Bracknell Leisure Center. So you had the Cook Incorporated money, the John Hall money, the Harry Rubleski money, the Harvey Goldsmith money, the Barry Marshall money, all coming into the BBL saying, we're going to put this thing big time in big arenas. And then you had the core nucleus of the BBL that had been around for 25, 30 years, still playing in leisure centers. And the problem was that the money then that would come in for sponsorship, because you were going to be on Sky, and there might be 10,000 people in the National Indoor Arena for a game in Birmingham on Sky. So you could go, you know, get Budweiser, you could go get Derry Lee Dunkers or whatever to come in with big sponsorship money. But now when you sat around the tables, the big money owners, well, they want a little bit more of the share of that sponsorship money because every night, just to open the doors of the Manchester Arena, MEN Arena, for the Giants to play, I think it was costing them somewhere between eight to 12,000 pounds just to rent the building and open the doors. So every arena was costing these big money owners a lot of money to put the game in those arenas. But then they're saying, well, Sky Sports might not even be here televising these games if we weren't in these big arenas. They might not want to televise games in a leisure center that seats 400 people. And you had, you know, my good friend Mike Burton and Chester playing on a tile floor with wooden backboards in the Northgate Arena. So just down the road in Manchester, uh, the Cook Group is paying 10,000 pounds a night to rent the MEN Arena. And just down the road in Chester, Mike Burton is probably paying 200 pounds a night <laughs> to rent Northgate Arena. And that discrepancy was, I think, always going to be a problem for the BBL moving forward. 15 seasons at Florida Tech. And I, I should remind you of an interview that you we did that you said you much preferred the professional game to the college game. But it's an incredible run you've had there. I mean, if anyone doesn't know Florida Tech, it's just southeast of Orlando, Division Two school. But you've won more there than anyone. And clearly, to be at any one place in college basketball for that length of time is an achievement. But it must be fun to have kind of put down roots and, and have a program that is absolutely yours. Well, and, and, you know, when we moved here, Mark, you, you, I'm sure you remember well, I had small children that were born all in England and all very proud of their British heritage. Um, you know, England is still my home. Uh, it's still my children's home. I married a, a beautiful young lady from Kent. I don't uh, think wife. Lynn would ever forget you or forgive you if you didn't say that was your home. <laughs> and and we actually now uh you know her parents sadly have passed away and you know we've inherited a property so you know we own property in england and we go back and you know 
we still have so much, so many friends, so much family uh, still back there. England will forever be part. When we've even talked about it, when I retire from college coaching, I've got to get Josh through college. That's what I want to do. When all of my kids are through college and out successfully employed, um, then we'll retire and we're going to spend part of our year. I mean, I would say maybe half the year in Florida and half the year in England uh, because I love it so much. I mean, it, it is still, you know, I consider, I consider myself to be honorary British and I love the country and I, I still miss living there. Uh, I miss a great curry. It's tough to get a curry over here like you can get there. So, uh, yeah, there's there's still a great bond, you know, uh, with my family and, and, and England. And it, there always will be. Uh, you know, I'm proud to say my son, Josh, played for the England under 15 basketball team. Uh, a few summers ago, he, he was invited over to training camp and uh, up in Sheffield at the old Ponds Forge Arena. And Steve Bucknell, one of the guys I loved coaching against, his son, Marcus Bucknell, was there at the camp as well. Uh, Daniel Hildreth, that I coached against when he played for Darby in the BBL and, and some down at Worthing as well. And his son, Cameron, uh, was on the team. So it gave me a chance to go back and, you know, uh, go down memory lane with those guys and see our sons all make the team and go to Copenhagen and, uh, you know, I was so proud to see my son, Josh, on the court in Copenhagen, winning a bronze medal, wearing an England vest. Uh, you know, his his grandfather in Kent is a huge, obviously, football fan and was a, was a great Arsenal supporter. But I've never seen him more proud than when we got back and showed him the medal that his son had won uh, playing basketball for England. Uh, so... All of my kids, my one of my daughters says once she gets out of college, she's moving back to England and she's going to live and work there. So, you know, there's there's like I said, the the affinity, the love, the bond uh, will be forever between my family uh, and England. Uh, but when we moved over here, Mark, I had three young children. Um, Courtney was in primary school. Uh, Callie was in preschool in England. Uh, and Josh was a baby. And our goal was to, to move somewhere that would be a great place to, to put down those roots, like you said, and a great place to raise a family. And for me, I got a phone call from Bill Jurgens, the athletic director here at Florida Tech, had heard that I was back in the States. And uh, we spent a year in Texas, in West Texas, in the, the Permian Basin, which is the West Texas desert oil field country um, where all the oil wells are out there. And uh, my wife felt moving from someone who grew up in London to living in the West Texas desert. <laughs> I don't know how long she could have stayed there. Um, but after a year, we got a call that the job was open at Florida Tech and they wanted to know would I be interested in coming and taking over. And it was a similar challenge to the challenge that I had at Leicester because when I came to Florida tech, the previous coach that, that they had had just released, they had had eight straight losing seasons. So it was a program that was mired in mediocrity and 
had, had been at the bottom of the Sunshine State Conference, and our conference is probably the best Division II conference in America. We compete at the Division One mid-major level talent-wise, and many of the teams in our league, uh, Barry University that I used to coach at, just a couple of years ago, Barry went to Auburn and beat Auburn University at Auburn, which is a Division One SEC. Auburn won the Southeastern Conference that year and then went to the Final Four the next year, last year, of the NCAA tournament for Division One. But Barry beat Auburn at Auburn and a month later came to Florida Tech and we beat that Barry team. So this this is a league that competes at the Division One level talent-wise and it was going to be a challenge here. And I sort of said the same thing to my boss. I said, give me three years and I'll get this ship going. And in my third year here at Florida Tech, we won 20 games and we were ranked as high as number 11 in the nation, which was the highest national ranking in the program's history. Since then, we've gone on to win the Sunshine State Conference. We've produced countless All-Americans. And this year we had seven former Florida Tech Panthers still playing pro basketball actively right now in Europe or South America. So we've produced some All-American players. We've produced some pro players. Uh, I've been fortunate. You know, we've had a lot of success here. And, you know, we're coming off of a tough year, but we were really young and we faced a lot of injuries last year. But we've got a bright future next season ahead of us. Uh, We've got two young Brits playing for us that are going to factor big time into the next couple of seasons here. Yeah, just to quickly finish, tell me about this. Sean Russell, Niall Harris, of course, people know Leicester Riders, Dave Harris, his son's there. I mean, you kind of keep popping back over here to steal some players, don't you? Well, I just think, again, it's my respect for basketball (laughs) in England. Uh, You know, I, I spent 12 years there, and I know how good the players are. You know, back in the day when Steve Bucknell was in the NBA, you know, people were like, they play basketball in England? And and I remember when I lived in England, there were times when I would introduce myself somewhere and I'd say, I'm a basketball coach. And the British person would look at me and say, oh, we play basketball here? So there were times when people didn't even know. And I mean, I remember going to uh, Asda one day and buying some groceries. And I'm standing in line at, at the checkout till and the girl looks at me and she says, she goes, oh, what, where's that accent from? I said, well, I'm American. She goes, oh, no, I know that. But where did you uh, come from in America? I said, well, I actually moved over here from Miami. And she said, why? <laughs> and and I, I had to laugh. And I was like, well, I'm living in London now. London's pretty cool, you know. Uh, Miami's nice, but London's also really nice. And uh, it was sort of that, that's when I kind of got to feel for British personality, you know, that most Americans are always bragging that they're from America, but most Brits would not do the same thing. You know, you're a little bit more reserved. And obviously, uh, when you say anything about Florida, it's like a suburb of England because there are an awful lot of English people that spend a lot of their time in Florida, um, which is kind of nice. We've, we actually have a, a British grocery store in Melbourne. And they sell Marmite and they sell Pucka Pies and they sell Walker's Crisp. So we have a little British grocery store downtown Melbourne. Uh, The owner is transplanted here from England and they ship over English supplies 
even English tea for my wife so that the Brits that live here in Brevard County uh, can uh, get their fill of their English groceries. So there's there's some, still some great ties. But you mentioned two wonderful young men. Session Russell from London uh, is playing for us. His freshman year last year, he averaged 17 points a game and was one of the leading freshman scorers in the nation. This year, as a sophomore, he averaged a little over 19 points a game. And I think the next couple of years, you're going to see him put up numbers like 20, 25 points a game. I think he'll be an All-American, and I think he's going to be a quality professional player. There were pro scouts in our gym this year looking at him already. Uh, The general manager from Olympiakos in Greece uh, came over and watched the game, and, and he was thrilled by him. And like, wow, that guy's got two more years to develop. So... Uh, Session's going to have a great career in front of him. He's a wonderful young man. He played for the GB under 18 team and uh, did a great job for them and helped them get promoted uh, in the to the European A division when he was with uh, that under 18 team. Um, so you know he's had a, a great career. He played for Charnwood uh, when uh, in the uh, Russell Levinston's um, development club there. Uh, the Lester Riders Club Development Program, and uh, just did a great job there, kind of putting that Charnwood program on the map uh, in his final year there. So I'm really, really excited to have Session in our program. He's a great kid, loves the game. He's a good student, and he's a coach's dream because he's in the gym every morning at 6 a.m. He'll get in the gym at 6 a.m., get out the gun, which is our shooting machine, He'll put up shots for an hour. He'll shower, eat breakfast, and go to class at 8. And he'll be back here at 3.30 for practice. So he's a coach's dream. Uh, And then Niall Harris, you mentioned. Niall was a freshman this year, and we think he's going to be a really good player. Uh, This shows you how old I'm getting, Mark. Um, When I remember coaching against Dave Harris when he played for the Leicester Riders, when I took over the Riders, Dave had just – tired so I never really got a chance to coach Dave Harris um, but I coached against him a lot and I tell you I never thought that I'd still be in the game where I start coaching sons of guys either I've coached or coached against but uh, Niall Harris uh, is really developed into a fine young player Uh, he played this past summer for the GB under 20 team uh, in European play, played for Carl Brown. Carl Brown coached that GB under 20 team, and he took Niall Harris along, and Niall became one of the starting guards for that GB under 20 team. So we've got a couple of England's best young players in our program, and like I said, Niall is going to develop and going to have great success. Um, this year he had a rough year because he started off the year with a sprained wrist, and that took him a few weeks to recover from. As soon as he gets the rest of okay, he's in the weight room with our strength coaches in the morning, and he dropped a weight on his finger, had to go to the hospital and get stitches, and it was the middle finger on his shooting hand, the last place you touch the ball when you release it. So that caused a problem for him. He couldn't shoot properly for a few weeks with the stitches and the, the soft tear. And then he comes back from that, and he takes a charge in practice, goes down, hits his head hard on the floor, and has a concussion. 
and then he's in concussion protocol for a few weeks. So, for unfortunately for Nile, he was up and down because of the injuries. But when he's healthy and has a, a full season opportunity under his belt, I, I think he's going to be a, a, a great addition to our program as well. And we're coming back there as soon as this coronavirus mess is over because we got a couple more kids over there in England and Ireland that we're recruiting right now and hopefully going to sign. So maybe we'll have five or six Brits or Irish players on our roster next season. And the connection between Billy Mims and, and Great Britain uh, and, and that part of the world, my second home there, will continue. Well, it's always good to look back and always good to hear that you're doing so well. Billy Mims, always a pleasure. Stay safe. Stay well, and thank you so much for joining us on the MVP cast. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for all you do for basketball back there in the UK. Appreciate it. That's it for this edition of the MVP cast. You can get all our previous editions via MVP247.com or your preferred podcast provider. We'll have another one very soon for you. But stay safe and catch you soon.